Incredibly, the demands were documented in emails. In excerpts, the hackers say, quote, Your company isn't important to us, but it's clearly very important to you. If you take over a big botnet, we want insider info on it. The Jazzy called the language juvenile. It did indicate the age group that we were dealing with. But that doesn't necessarily mean they can't do damage. doesn't mean they're harmless. Absolutely. It's like a baby with a gun. It was mid-May 2011, around 2 a.m., and my phone dings, clearly telling me I've got an email. Now, I don't always get up at 2 a.m. to answer emails, but for whatever reason, I did. And let me tell you, there is nothing more sobering for an intelligence and cybersecurity professional than receiving an email with one of your passwords in the subject line and the body of the email with nothing more than the words, let's talk. So, I mean, it could have been, the first thing that went through my head was it could have been my hacker friends uh, joking around, but this crosses the line and goes beyond a harmless prank. You just sort of, there are rules and things like passwords and all that, just not one that uh, at least my group of friends would have probably done. And, um, the ensuing events from that moment are honestly stranger or more shocking than fiction. But before I get started in exactly what transpired, let me give you some context and a little sense of what the geopolitical climate was at the time and the environmental factors that were in play at the time. First, this is in 2011 and the Arab Spring was in motion. I think it was probably in the mid to later stages of that point. Um, and for those that don't remember, this is around the time that Egypt and a slew of other neighboring countries all had uh, protests in the streets and regime changes and a variety of other things. So it was, it was quite a tumultuous period of time. A lot was going on. My company, Unvalence, um, was invited at that in that time period to contribute uh, as, a, as an author to a think tank initiative for a project. And the project was called Project Cyberdon. And our contribution was to assess the level of compromise on a country by country basis. Libya happened to be the country they highlighted in the report. This all has relevance to the story. Now the report was made public with certain information redacted. You can still find it on the internet today if you search for Project Cyberdon. You'll probably find the redacted version. But there was an unredacted version which was in give, which was given to the intelligence community and other, I guess, you know, groups associated with geopolitical analysis and other things that were going on. And it was really just that. It was a research effort to kind of understand what the, not only vulnerabilities, but the state of compromise, which is where we had expertise uh, in to, to give context of what was going on there. So we were happy to contribute. We saw the effort as a good public service at the time. And self-servingly, it did give us some really good recognition. Uh, little did I know that that would be used as a publicity weapon against me personally later. Second, WikiLeaks were embroiled in an all-out war with the government and several large corporations. And it was primarily around their ability to get funding back then. And it usually, and almost entirely, I think most of their money came from things like donations through their website. And donations are obviously conveyed through things like credit cards. 
So there was an embargo that seemed to uh, manifest. Uh, a lot of the uh, payment methods were shut down and the hacker collective Anonymous came to their defense. So Julian Assange associated with Anonymous and WikiLeaks and that whole barrel of monkeys. In fact, Parmi Olson's book entitled We Are Anonymous Inside the Hacker World of LulzSec Anonymous and the Global Cyber Insurgency goes into really great detail on this. It's an incredible book. I urge you to, to look at it or pick one up, pick up a copy. That also covers my story in that book as well um, in more detail than what I'm sharing here in this podcast. Well, LulzSec emerged from this group as a splinter cell from the greater collective with, and they had a more aggressive and bloodlust filled agenda. They called it anti-sec. Um, and so, you know, it, it wasn't a very well formulated content, con, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just, it, they weren't even adhering loosely to what the hacktivist agenda seemed to be with anonymous. They were really more interested in sort of flexing their black hat muscle. That was kind of their intention. And the third environmental situation at the time was that earlier that same evening on the home front with me, I watched an email in my inbox switch from unread to read and then back to unread. Now it felt off, but not enough to sound the alarms. I mean, in retrospect, everything, everything in hindsight is 2020. I did however, change all my passwords for good measure. Um, and that move little did I know was the catalyst of what inspired the ominous, uh, 2 AM email. So I replied to the email. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> and this incited a dialogue uh, that shifted from email to an encrypted online chat. Uh, from there, threats started being made, uh, actually on both sides. Um, we were as aggressive back as they were to us. Um, they even managed at one point to call my cell phone from a Skype number and spoofed it as if it were my aunt calling, who never calls, by the way. <laughs> So you really can't make this stuff up. They were they were very sensational. This is definitely things that you would see in movies, and I think they they were uh, hamming it up as best they could. In summary, this group, which at the time was still unidentified by us, threatened that they had infiltrated my personal and business systems, and they would dox me if I didn't comply with their demands. And for those that don't know what doxing is, it's essentially a shortened little meme term for documents. And it's them sharing all this information they may have on you or they claim they have on you to the public in creating embarrassment or disclosures that you don't want shared, whatever the case may be. And uh, the demands were that they wanted us, Unvalence, to deliver intelligence to them on botnets and malware threats that we had infiltrated. Their goal was to use our intelligence to further their exploits um, of what they're already doing and basically act as a giant cyber parasite, you know, working off the leveraging off other people's uh, malicious efforts and, and sort of force multiplying their abilities that way. They, uh, they threatened that if I reached out to anyone, especially law enforcement, they would immediately dox me. So I called the FBI, the DOD, friends at the CIA, NSA, and shared what was happening with everyone I could possibly talk to. Um, and aspects of what happened 
I can't publicly disclose in certain capacities at the moment, but they picked a fight and that is exactly what they got with us. It was uh, shortly thereafter that we identified the group as Lulsec. Um, something in, in inspired them to get very angry because I think I was suggesting they were a lower level <laughs> group than they were. And so they, I kind of got them to uh, kind of get off tilt and a little bit emotional and they shared uh, a little bit more of who they were. And they had just been highlighted in the news for hacking the CIA, Sony, PBS, and several law enforcement. I think there was a border um, facility in Arizona that was hit by them, which was pretty bad. Um, pretty, pretty heinous stuff. And this is the most important part of the conversation. It wasn't necessarily their hacking that was such a, a brutal part of it because there was a method to the madness there, and I'll get into it uh, in this conversation. But what they, what was bad about them is they were glory hounds and they had amassed a gigantic following on Twitter by tweeting their every move. So bystanders, essentially Twitter followers were watching this story unfold in real time. And it was like watching a movie, but it was better because it was real and they could actually see what was happening and they could, I hate to say it, they were probably vying for the bad guy to kind of continue to win because it was entertaining. And that's just sort of the car wreck nature of this whole thing. But um, the worst was yet to come for me. About a week or so later, they dropped a batch of emails publicly proving they had indeed gotten into my personal Gmail account. Uh, we later found out they hacked into Atlanta's InfraGuard database to collect emails of members, one of which was mine. InfraGuard is a public-private sector partnership, cooperative uh, between the FBI and the private sector cybersecurity community to address a variety of things. And they kept the database of those members. And I was in that database. Um, by the way, this was before two-factor authentication was really broadly adopted. It was there. And frankly, that was something that should have been turned on, but it wasn't, uh, admittedly. But it was something that really would have limited that kind of attack had it been more prolifically uh, adopted. And you know, it's interesting about this, what was even worse than kind of their glory hound uh, ways and then, and then the hacking itself was that they used a very clever reverse psychology tactic, which was essentially, we're, we already admit, admit we are bad guys, which in turn gives us this freedom to be truthful. Really twisted, but it works when you think about it. In other words, if they're already bad, why bother trying to hide it? In other words, we aren't worried about sullying our reputations like these elitist white hats like Kareem, Hijazi, and the FBI, right? So they were sort of demonizing us because they sort of said we were under the pressure of being good, which made us lie, when in reality, they were free of that burden so they could be truthful. And it was an extremely effective strategy, and it did see doubt in the public via their Twitter jockeying. And it, it really was something they're able to do, especially with big corporations, because they simply couldn't respond. Uh, PR departments and big organizations like that generally have a policy to simply not give it any air. And I understand. But what they did next was chilling. They found the Project Cyberdon report. I believe the redacted version, but that didn't really matter. And they spun it to the press and the general public that the project was a secret government operation to infiltrate certain Middle Eastern countries and governments. And I was at the epicenter of the black op. <laughs> so um, 
they what they did in essence was convert a, a cyber threat or cyber infiltration or or campaign into a very credible physical threat to me by inciting real anger by very real people because not only was my name somewhat inflammatory to that part of the world it was believable just based on a, a layman's person looking at the report seeing my company's name there are a variety of other authors in there meaning company authors that would have fit that profile pretty well and it was a, a very very challenging move so my family and i moved twice in the course of that year just to avoid any any risk and potential um altercation with with an actual angry individual that would have come to harass us and it was pretty exhausting thankfully nothing absolutely terrible happened but uh it didn't it didn't uh it didn't uh leave us feeling very good through that period so needless to say this was personally very trying but uh even beyond that the impact of the business was also very troubling because who wants to work with a cybersecurity firm that people believe has been hacked true or not perception is everything and you know that's a theme that's perpetual if you can get someone to believe something for better or worse i mean it's not always a negative thing but that is generally what the truth is to the world we're seeing that quite a bit these days so it's out in the open i've been doxxed effectively they've uh, blasted my name and the company's name all over twitter so the press was all over me and as i mentioned unlike large corporations who can afford to stay silent I decided to fight fire with fire. By the way, having a trusted public relations advisor is gold in times like this. And I had the best. He is absolutely fantastic. And he and I decided the best course of action would be for me to go on a media blitz, respond. And I had the latitude and the, and the agility to do it because we were small. Um, frankly, I had kind of nothing to lose than to go out there and share what had transpired. So it was a very effective strategy. And it was also the last thing they expected me to do. So I got to tell my side of the story to the world and regain a position of control. It was a very powerful exercise and chess maneuver, if you will. Computers can hold all kinds of personal and professional secrets, from bank account passwords to sensitive business emails. But every minute of every day, those secrets can be targets of so-called cyber generals who can link computers to act like soldiers, an illegal network called a botnet. What is a botnet? Just think of it as a, a, an actual computer network that's been sort of ad hoc put together by a group of criminals or someone with malintent. And who are the people doing this? You know, it, it ranges from everything from kids just playing around to really professional cyber criminals. Kareem Hajazi's company, Unvalence, tracks those illegal botnet networks. Companies hire him to see whether their computers are being tapped. You might call him a hacker tracker. Kareem, how does an attack start? The hacker typically infects a bunch of computers or out in corporate environments with a piece of malware or software viruses that ultimately feed information back to the command control server. So once that attack starts, the mm -hmm. information's going back to the control center. That's right. And the next map shows how widespread this is. Right. This is an hour-long snapshot in a 
sort of the afternoon of unveilance where we see botnets actually beaconing information out to the command control servers. Look at all those dots. Millions How many are we them. talking about at any given time? Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions. The JAWSI success exposing botnets drew the attention of one hacker group that wanted to steal his work. They were trying to extort us for botnet intelligence. The alleged extortionists are lulsic an offshoot of the hacker group Anonymous that grabbed headlines recently after the FBI arrested 14 members. What did they say they would do if you didn't comply with their demands? They claimed they had information on us. They had gotten a hold of some of our emails and they were going to release them if we didn't comply. What was that like? You're, you're sort of in a ransom situation. Incredibly, the demands were documented in emails. In excerpts, the hackers say, quote, your company isn't important to us but it's clearly very important to you. If you take over a big botnet, we want insider info on it. The Jazzy called the language juvenile. It did indicate the age group that we were dealing with. But that doesn't necessarily mean they can't do damage. Doesn't mean do they're harmless, absolutely. It's like a baby with a gun. Kareem Hajazi immediately called the FBI. Eventually, the hackers backed off after publicizing some of his emails. So far, no one's been caught, and the hacker tracker is back to exposing botnets. Susan Candiotti, CNN. Shortly after the airing of the CNN broadcast, um, and with a number of interesting caveats that I can't share, the core members of LulzSec were arrested and ultimately convicted. Um, we, on the other hand, gained a huge amount of notoriety and the offers to buy the company poured in. It was absolutely surreal. Just under a year and a half later, I sold my company to a legendary cybersecurity and intelligence organization in 2012. And um, little did I know that just over two years after that, I would be retired and sitting on a mountainside in Maui, Hawaii, looking at Larry Ellison's yacht without a care in the world. But uh, that, my friends, is for another episode. Have a great day.